0: Welcome to Coding in Canada, where we talk with leaders in technology in Victoria. I'm Sean Crabtree, your host. Uh, today, we'll be talking with Razul Rayani, who is a small entrepreneur, pardon me, a serial entrepreneur <laughs> with experience in the software, healthcare, and organic grocery business. He got his BA in psychology from UBC and uh, curiously, you're the third out of six of my guests who are homegrown in Victoria. Cool. He's an angel investor with a focus on B2B, consumer SaaS, and health tech. He's a board member, mentor, and advisor, and he's an investor in 19 local startups. I'm so excited to uh, have you here on the show. Welcome.
1: Thank you, great to be here. So uh, my
0: first question is, uh, were you always an entrepreneur? Were you always interested in business?
1: I know that's she, I, I grew up in an entrepreneurial household. My father uh, is a healthcare professional. He's a pharmacist, but he's also a business person. And uh, every, my, my earliest memories of him working in a business that our family owned and operated. And so, yeah, kind of grew up with it. And I think culturally, I, I, I'm an Indian. Uh, I hailed, my family hails from East Africa and a uh, cultural framework of, you know, traders and small businessmen, mm, business oh, person. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, as much as I've, uh, been, a been, you know, in the startup scene and, and whatnot, like it's sort of an, a, a new thing. I, I always keep on thinking like these harken back to the good old days of really just trade. Sure. One yeah. of the like four occupations from back in the uh, the days of uh, Rome and all this, right? Yeah. Um, your dad, uh, like you were like you were saying was a pharmacist, uh, People in Victoria will know about the Heart Pharmacy, which went through a rebranding recently, and uh, they have five locations around town. What's interesting that your father, Naz, said is uh, he really sees uh, the reason why it's called Heart, because it sort of stands for love, service, and community. And uh, that's kind of what I got from your biography when I was reading through it.
1: Oh, that's very kind. Would you say that's a sort
0: of a family
1: trait? Well, you know, certainly an ethic of service is is something that uh, I grew up with. Uh, My parents were always very engaged with volunteerism and uh, community contribution. And uh, I remember when we were kids, we don't celebrate Christmas in my faith, but we would get uh, a Christmas gift, which we would get to unwrap and then we would immediately give it away. Um, and, and so why we're just being kind of a bittersweet thing as a kid, <laughs> but, the, but the message now as an adult, I reflect back really fondly on how this, my parents were really thoughtful about engaging us in this idea of like paying it forward and, and being of service and, and uh, uh, my sister's a pharmacist, my mm-hmm. father's a pharmacist. We have lots of healthcare professionals in our extended family, doctors and nurses and all kind of called to the profession through a desire to be in contribution.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting that you went and got your degree in psychology um, was that something that
1: was a direct path? You know, I, um, I share the story often because I think it's informative insofar as I had zero plan at all when I was in school. Uh, so it was, I, I just followed curiosity blindly It led me down the path of, of psych. And I really enjoyed my undergrad. It was an amazing experience. Uh, it became apparent to me, uh, through my program that I would need to find, uh, employment outside the field of psychology. I didn't really have it in me to do another seven years of, of academic work to get to a clinical position and, uh, it just didn't, didn't speak to me. Um, and, uh, at the same time I was, uh, employed working for, uh, what was UBC's internet service provider as a, as a help desk guy. Uh, and I worked for the faculty of arts information technology department. Uh, and then later I worked for, uh a training company that trained uh, office professionals on how to use desktop software, all, all those kind of gigs while I was finishing my school. And and all these experiences kind of contributed to a realization that, you know, my real passion was technology software um, and and then kind of shifted my focus in that direction.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this was in the late 90s, I think, right? Yeah,
1: I finished at EBC in uh, 97, 98, and I moved back to Victoria uh, for a short stint. Actually, I had a really interesting project working with the Ministry of Education, is like an IT contractor, which mm. was a great, great job in terms of just like one, getting to appreciate what life might be like as a civil servant and, mm-hmm. and learning about that, that side of the, the Victoria ecosystem. Mm. Uh, and, and then again, kind of reinforcing this idea that uh, I, I was working for an entrepreneur who had his own IT services business and recognizing just uh, how much opportunity there was in that space. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, well, you're not kidding.
0: You liked uh, business because wow, four years out of college, you get into Metalogix yeah, uh, And th- uh, who those of you who haven't heard, uh, they uh, are a leading provider of enterprise collaboration and infrastructure solutions for the Fortune 500. Uh, they are acquired in, uh, by Hermira yeah. in 2014, um, and actually recently acquired by Guest Software earlier this year. That's right. Uh, they won North America's largest new venture competition in 2002. Um, they had a digit growth. Uh, they're now a world-class tool and service that people rely on
1: day over day. Um, how did how did this happen? This yeah, is colossal. So, so to another theme of my existence: um, uh, serendipity, and you know, trusting and connections with other other people who were doing good things. Um, I connected with a fellow by the name of Julian Selgrant soon after I graduated from BBC through a, a high school connection. His sister and I went to school together. Mm. Uh, we ended up being roommates and then co-founded a business together. I actually worked for him for a time, and then we and then and then in a subsequent opportunity co-founded a business together with another fellow named Jordy Henderson, and that was Metalogics. Mm. It was Vancouver-based, and uh, we had a really good connection into Microsoft through a former roommate of mine, mm. and so it was really uh, you know working. The network uh, in a really fundamental way. So all these people were were arms length individuals that I had great relationships with, and it led to a really great business, which we started off not really sure how to commercialize the technology that we've been working on, which. Uh, was initially screen scraping technology that was using uh, machine learning, uh, which wasn't really a term back then. But we we're using statistical and prob- probabilistic models to scrape data from websites, and uh, that transformed into uh, migration tools for Microsoft's collaboration platform, so SharePoint, and um, then later Exchange. Mm. And uh, was you know a three-person business turned into later a ten-person business, and then uh, ultimately you know when it was acquired by Quest. A uh, 250 person business doing around 70 million in revenue. So, wow, uh, really great story in terms of a uh, Canadian success. Um, follows kind of maybe the the not always loved uh, outcome of being acquired by an American company, right? Yeah. Uh, but really great exit for the founders. Uh, we all uh, remain good friends and co-investors regularly in, in early stage deals, and it was an amazing experience. Um, you know, working with Microsoft in that era was uh, really a positive experience. They were, they were great collaborators and, uh, gave us really amazing opportunities. We, you know, we, we had the opportunity to keynote, uh, at tech ed, which is like a conference for 10,000 people. Um, we had the opportunity to spend time in Redmond on campus and meet, uh, a large number of the executive team there. Um, yeah, really, really, uh, a unique experience and born of, uh, kind of an era where it was the, the nascent cycle of digital customer acquisition. So our growth in that business was really leveraging things like uh, pay-per-click advertising early when that was a, a, a brand new feature for Google, mm-hmm. um, leveraging right. kind of the techniques one might observe or read in books like Predictable Revenue, which was a telesales model for the enterprise mm-hmm. uh, that was scalable and uh, really uh, a passion for customer success mm-hmm. uh, and an early model that relied on recurring revenue. So we were kind of early adopters on all those fronts. and. In, in, the, in the beginning of what is kind of like the modern cycle of enterprise software, SaaS, um, and, and uh, had a great outcome. Wow, that's amazing. Um, and what was your role there? I started off uh, mainly in the sales function. So I had two team members or two co-founders that were both software developers. Mm-hmm. So uh, sales and business development is where I spent most of my time. By the end of the arc, I'd probably done... Uh, uh, a lot of everything, but with a heavy emphasis on on talent recruitment, and product management, on top of sales, business development, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and marketing. So, what does
0: business development and sales? What did that? Um, what did you have to do in those early
1: days? Uh, yeah, there's some funny stories here. Uh, we ran the business before the exit, in two thousand fourteen, and I actually left in two thousand and ten. Uh, we we did kind of had two phases for the business, but. In the early days, I lived in Vancouver and then worked for this, worked with my colleagues in Vancouver. So I would, I would actually live at the office Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So I would fly in Monday morning and then we had a fold out couch and I'd sleep in the office. It was a great space in Gastown, so I didn't really mind in terms of venue. Uh, it was a little bit challenging for my family at the time, uh, but uh, made it possible to kind of be uh, kind of an Uber sales guy insofar mm. as uh, you know, I answered the phone, did the demos. Uh, did the outbound telesales work myself. Um, and, and then we had this funny joke in the office, which was if a phone call came in before 4 AM cause we had international clients and uh, I would answer and say, I was working late if they figured out the time difference. And if it came after 4 AM, I, if I had my my wits about me, I'd say I was working early, uh, you know, I never told anyone that we had these customers that I was living at the office at the time, because that right. would just sound weird. Uh, phone right on your Yeah. So, your- so, so in that era, you know, it was, uh. One of the stories I'm fond of telling is when we used to do demos at Microsoft, this was before cloud technology was really well well developed or well, uh, or very accessible. Mm-hmm. Right, right? And so we used to smuggle a server down to Redmond with us. Uh, I say smuggle because we try and get into the boardroom before the meeting, set up the server so we could do the demo of our software. Uh, and then, you know, just see a laptop sitting on the table. Cause it'd be weird to have a tower sitting on the table. <laughs> right. uh, and then, you know, we'd come back after the meeting was over and grab the server again and stick it in our trunk and drive back up to Vancouver. Uh, but, but to differentiate between sales and business development in that era, business development was really cultivating the relationship with Microsoft. Uh, we, we followed a playbook, which is I think uh, a familiar playbook for Canadian businesses and, and as a startup strategy, quite a, quite a good one, which is we built tools to service a fast growing ecosystem. Uh, So in the Canadian context now, like a modern example is there's a a wide variety of businesses which have built themselves around being attached to the Shopify ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And so they leverage the relationship with Shopify and the features that Shopify doesn't necessarily provide to their clientele to access a large customer base. Efficiently, we did the same thing. Uh, we did it for SharePoint, which was a Microsoft collaboration system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was really born of a, a close relationship with Microsoft, and then later other other enterprise software vendors. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I thought that was that's what really struck me
0: was what was really brilliant. Is starting with how can you work with one of the largest players back in the day? I mean, I'm sure is more colossal in in, in uh, Fortune 500 than Apple and others, um, uh, and then you answered something that no one else could answer, yeah. and you tied it all
1: together. Yeah, we we were really fortunate, which was, um, you know, we we were had close proximity to the product team. So We really invested in relationships with understanding where their strategic directions were going, uh, and then invest in our time and energy in building collaborative or complementary solutions uh, that would would address market needs. So migration was a tool or a service model uh, in that scenario. It was helping customers upgrade from previous versions of SharePoint, uh, which you know no one grows up dreaming of building a SharePoint migration solution. Uh, but once you're in, in a sort of customer success, passionate about customer needs mindset, uh, all sorts of opportunities present themselves that you can build solutions for. Right. And we had great experiences working with amazing organizations, helping them solve meaningful problems. And that created a lot of value.
0: Yeah. For instance, uh, it says here that 14,000 clients essentially use these end, end tools every single day to monitor, migrate, store, synchronize, archive, secure, backup, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it's just... Um, when you're talking about you know what are people's needs,
1: that's exactly it.
0: Yeah, every single day they
1: use this in all these different functions. And we had you know relations with amazing companies, Visa, um, uh, the Department of Defense of the U.S., uh, the federal government, the IRS, BC Ferries, the, the federal government of Canada, um, may, many many divisions of the public sector, many Fortune 1000 companies, uh, uh, international clients, you know uh, Australia, New Zealand uh, the UK, Japan. And so, so really just an amazing ride. Mm-hmm. Wow. Amazing. And then after that, you said
0: you exited, of course, in 2010, uh, there's a bit of a gap here. there. I see you're an advisor for, um, one, uh, company, uh, backstage games at the
1: time, but what happened for you in that time? Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question. And, uh, uh, kind of, kind of relates to the, the, the transition in, in, in profession to some extent which was uh so you asked earlier about my my youthful experiences of entrepreneurship i got to work for my dad as a kid uh which um in some ways was amazing uh, every saturday morning i'd wake up and go to the pharmacy and be the cashier merchandiser receiver do whatever everyone really was required mm-hmm. um and when i graduated from high school i was pretty excited to go to ubc because that meant i couldn't work saturdays anymore and the, the family joke was that you know uh my, my dad promised me I could work at the drugstore every weekend if I went to UVic and I promptly said I was going to UBC. Uh, so that, that's what thats what one of my motivations was to move away and uh, had you know, great experiences being in Vancouver. For sure. 2010, sadly, my father took quite ill. He had a uh, blood infection which led to a series of uh, hemorrhagic strokes, bleeds in his brain. And so I spent most of that year, uh, you know, I have this very fond recollection of him and I being at the Olympics together in February, and then just a month or two later, he was hospitalized for the first time that year. Uh, and then uh, complications and, and the bleeds uh, resulted in him being in the hospital, in and out of the hospital, pretty much from um, the end of May through till uh, November. And so I spent much of that time uh, on a leave of absence from Metalogix Right. And then ultimately elected not to return. So I spent, spent that time with him mostly in the hospital. Uh, and, and, you know, I feel really fortunate that, um, I was in a position where I could invest that time in his care, uh, and he's doing much better now miraculous recovery, uh, long rehabilitation. Uh, but there was a point in that cycle where he couldn't walk or talk. And now he's, uh, a phenomenal dancer and, um, great, great, uh, bridge player and, you know, doing wonderful and enjoying his granddaughters. Uh, and so there was, you know, an opportunity just to be supportive of him in that time. Mm-hmm. And I recognized that I, you know, I had a choice. I could go back to uh, my business, uh, or I could support and engage in a family enterprise, which was Heart Pharmacy. It was a different name back then, uh, and you know, I, I, I was opportunistic and ambitious and the opportunity to acquire other pharmacies presented itself. Mm. Uh, And So we expanded from two to five locations Mm. in the the following year. Uh, And then uh, my sister and my brother in law joined the the family enterprise and they're really gifted entrepreneurs and and business people as well. My sister's a pharmacist, my brother in law has an MBA from Duke, really smart guy. So I was really lucky to have them as collaborators. Uh, And that set the platform for further expansion and opportunities. And and I had this kind of uh, uh, thesis, which was there are meaningful opportunities in existing bricks and mortar businesses uh, and particularly ones that have service oriented mandates. So the pharmacies really engaged in community service and community um, needs. And so that really fit with our family ethic and my dad's tradition and, and what he built. And that's a really wonderful platform from which to continue to engage with early stage businesses. So there's kind of a, um, uh, in our, in our collective um, operating model, there's, cash flowing businesses uh, that that are scalable and global we have investments and in, uh, I make these personally and through through um, uh, joint ventures in early stage businesses uh, where I believe in the founders and and be connected to that uh, startup energy which I really loved for my time at Metalogix, Uh and then philanthropic engagement uh, as, as kind of a uh, another element of, of our uh, family story and my personal story and and certainly the 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 uh, path that my father led.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, based on one of the articles, uh, it sounds like your father said uh, something to the degree of, you know, are you, are you happy that your your family have followed in your footsteps? And he goes, how you know what father wouldn't say they would be happy to for your family to follow through the family business footsteps. Um, let's move on to uh, what happened afterwards, which uh, is inversely and MediaCore. Um, these are two exits that you uh, came out of, um, and I was wondering um, how Versly came about at first.
1: Uh, yeah, so so the first investment I made was actually Backstage. You mentioned that earlier. That was in 2009, and, and that was acquired by Real later on. Uh, and then Versly was acquired by Cisco, uh, and the MediaCore later was, was acquired by uh, Workday. And in each of those instances, it was uh, engaging with uh, the the method of my my success in those endeavors is really you know uh, being attached to great entrepreneurs, and I would say to the earlier story of meeting Julian, my co-founder at Metalogics, and having some trust in being able to identify and engage with people who really have purpose and meaning and are tackling interesting problems. Uh, that lights me up to be, you know, close to people who are doing those things. Uh, uh, each of those founders, so uh, Russ and Eric and Stuart, uh, were all uh, amazing individuals doing really cool projects. And so I was just, you know, able to share uh, in those stories as an investor and in some cases an advisor or board member uh, and really investing my time in, In uh, you know, I didn't really have a, a clear descriptor for it at the time, but if I look back now and reflect on it, it was really engaging with entrepreneurs around the emotional travails of the ups and downs of being in that uh, high growth, high demands space Mm -hmm. uh, and helping through thinking through strategic outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, really bored of my experiences with Metalogix and then you know, having all these subsequent experiences with amazing entrepreneurs, I feel like I have this really great set of stories and experiences to share with New entrepreneurs around areas where uh, you know there's common pitfalls, there's risks. Yeah, Um, yeah, my own mistakes. uh, Lots, lots to draw on there. Right, right. More more than enough for several podcasts.
0: Yeah, more, more, more experience.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
0: Well, one thing I see uh, commonly is, of course, uh, you uh, taking an angel role, a seed role um, uh, for various rounds. Maybe could you talk a little bit about, uh, for, for entrepreneurs, or maybe approaching that, um, what should their expectations be? What should they be preparing for? Um, what type of person would they be wanting to get in that partnership?
1: Um, That's a great question. Uh my, my experience has been the entrepreneurs who are most able to articulate their vision and passion are the ones that are most likely to be able to engage with collaborative, supportive investors. Mm. Uh, alignment is a huge uh, factor. So if you, if you look at the marketplace right now and if you look at the industry stats, there's a surplus of capital. There's more than enough capital to uh, invest in uh, early stage business opportunities. Uh, the individuals who are able to differentiate themselves on a clear and articulate vision of, of the kind of world changing or business-disrupting space that they're attacking um, are the ones that tend to uh, succeed as an as a initial statement. And then subsequently, if they're able to articulate that story well to those who are looking to invest, there's ample ample runway, ample fuel to, to do that. I think one of the things that I observe in entrepreneurs uh, and this is, you know, taught again and again through accelerator programs like Y Combinator or Tech Stars, um, is the ability to understand your unit economics. What, what actually drives the model, uh, in a way that makes it scale more differentiable, uh, and allows you to turn a dollar into more than a dollar is a powerful tool for entrepreneurs to engage others in their story. So you need, you know, you need purpose and vision, but you also have to have this, uh, Business model understanding, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know if you're really kind of in that vision purpose space, sometimes there's uh, differentiated technology or game changing technology that may have some level of defensibility, and those that that also is a very alluring, uh, enticing thing to a pr- prospective investor, which is if you have uh, u- unique IP mm-hmm. 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 storytelling though fundamentally. Uh, it's so interesting. You know, And you look at entrepreneurs who succeed in raising capital, they're also good at sales and the two processes are highly similar. Mm-hmm. If you can engage someone to part with their money to be an investor, the likelihood of you being able to uh, engage with someone to, impart, or to, to part with their capital for your service or product is, is uh there's a correlation there. And, you know, I, I've shifted my investment thesis a little bit more towards companies that have traction and early stage proof points in terms of, of, uh, building their business, uh, but I've made bets on entrepreneurs who are, you know, before that revenue line where they they are just that compelling at convincing people to invest because that storytelling, uh, sales, and uh, persuasion capacity is a critical entrepreneurial success trait. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Warren Buffett said is one piece of advice wa- to investors: were only invest in a business you understand, and then also. Um, uh, management team that you think can execute. Uh, what do you look for uh, in your investments?
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, another good question. So when I reflect back on the success that Metalogics had, we had kind of three core elements, which I think we had going for us, which is a real passion for customer success. So we were really, really wanted people to be happy with the outcomes from using our tools, and we our technical team and our engineering team shared that passion. We had uh, so, so, sort of a intensity around that that um, was palpable in the office, palpable in the team. If you uh, are really taking joy in the value that you're creating for your customers and can double down on making sure that's occurring, that, that, that embodies a really valuable element. Mm-hmm. We had uh, technical differentiation or a unique way of approaching problem. Uh, and, and the third, I guess, is a bit more amorphous, but charm, likability. Uh, we worked really hard to increase our surface area of opportunity by, by being not only the best but also really great to work with. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I have a bit of a humorous element on this, but I, I people who I I want to spend time with uh, in in a time constrained world, a, a way to find that um, that reason to be engaged in uh, doing something together is investing money, investing capital, investing resource, investing time, and so. Probably the most important thing for me is, is finding individuals that I want to spend more time with and uh, learn from, but and also share with. And I can say with like with conviction, each of those those examples you gave, uh, backstage, Versly, and uh, MediaCore, mm-hmm. uh, each of those entrepreneurs, I I got as much from them as I was able to give. Um, you know their their passion for the problem space, their mm-hmm. intellectual capacity and expertise, um, and all still friends.
0: Wow.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me that you have a a
0: laser focus on customer experience because even when it comes to, uh, you know, beyond these business investments, but your heart pharmacy, uh, your uh, recent recent uh, uh, article said that your strategy is to double down on uh, customer focus, uh, especially in these sort of complicated healthcare times, you know, people need to have the uh, time to have that sort of organic connection uh, with their pharmacist and
1: their healthcare provider. Uh, It's interesting, again, uh, to an observation in that that community construct, in that that, uh, care model, which is oftentimes what our pharmacy teams are contending with is loneliness uh, as an underlying uh, disease in its own right that often manifests with uh, cardiovascular disease, uh, metabolic disease like diabetes, mental health illnesses, it uh, is a societal challenge, one that we confront in the front lines in a really powerful way. You know, we talk about um, in the local storyline, we're supporting the therapeutic recovery community as a collaborator, which is a project by our place uh, where they've taken what used to be the youth detention facility and turned it into a place where individuals who are suffering from addiction issues, living leaving the criminal justice system can help be transitioned into a healthy lifestyle before returning to the community. And one of the core elements of that program is the idea that social connectivity mm. is an absolute necessity to avoid addiction issues. And if you if you look at that uh, love of customer and intensity around customer outcome and just shift the lens a little bit to healthcare, it, it's very easy to observe the number of individuals who are leveraging our health system as a result of fundamental emotional and psychological and social needs not being met. Mm. And we, we talk about this a lot in our organization and uh, in fact, I just came from a workshop where we were talking about it and looking for systemic opportunities to shift this and address it. And uh, yeah, in terms of, of even investing in opportunities around the space something we look at quite seriously.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, let me just take a break here to
0: uh, thank our sponsor, which could be you. Uh, This week, we don't have our sponsor for the first time. Uh, Roundtable Consulting has been our continued sponsor for the past five episodes and our gratitude to them. Um, If you want to become a sponsor of the podcast, um, it's mostly a community-based volunteer project. It's a very affordable uh, cost. We don't spend a lot of money willy-nilly. Please do consider uh, supporting the podcast. And uh, let's get back to a great interview here. Um, I know you're short on time, um, just about 20 minutes left, and I still have two or three pages of questions. <laughs> just <laughs> only two questions, only two pages. When um, switching gears to uh, when you joined Viatech Vo- in 2012 as, and uh, you were sitting as the board chair, what did ViTech look like uh, in
1: 2012? I, I should even re- reverse back. I, so I moved back to Victoria in 2005 from, from Vancouver. So I lived Vancouver, Vancouver roughly from 93 to to 2005 or 2006 with a couple stints in Victoria. Mm-hmm. And one of my sort of transformative experiences was attending the ViTech Awards dinner in 2007 or 2008 and just observing the vibrancy of the community of uh, Victoria's high-tech uh, ecosystem. It was just, it blew me away. Uh, I'd been to the BCtia Awards Dinner. Not to knock the BCtia; they do a great job. But the, the energy in the room at the BCtia Awards <laughs> Dinner versus the Biotech Awards Dinner is really hard to contrast. It's just so different. <laughs> and so I, I, you know, became really enamored with the reality that there's a lot of great things going on in Victoria, which I didn't really believe when I was growing up. I thought that I'd have to leave. And discovering there is just so much entrepreneurial energy and, and great businesses, leaders, and technologists and innovators here was really eye-opening. Um, I was lucky enough to serve on the board uh, with Biotech from uh, 2012 till to the end of last year and, and, and ended my term as chair. And it was, yeah, uh, in that time, really observing this recognition that uh, the membership is growing and there's an opportunity for the organization uh, to really help invest in capacity creation for our uh, leading businesses and technology leaders. Um, and lo- looking for opportunities to amplify a lot of the community-based efforts. So ViTech's been really great, I think, at uh, observing things that are working and amplifying them for the membership. Uh, recruitment, uh, leadership development, uh, uh, skills uh, sharing, peer groups have all been areas of, of great contribution. Uh, engaging with investors, um, learning about uh, different uh, trade missions. There's been a really diverse portfolio of great activity. I'm sure it's really changed since, uh, since those early days. Well, and, and just, to to recognize the leadership there and Dan and the rest of the board, uh, has been phenomenal and, uh, really impressed with the other board members I had a chance to interact with. Uh, and, and just, you know, what one key member that I would highlight is Scott Phillips, who was a chair before me and, and was the board chair when I joined, um, amazing, uh, community builder, contributor, uh, business person, and, uh, Connector in the community, someone I really, really admire and, and proud to call a friend. Yeah, well, he was uh, uh, just a
0: previous guest a couple episodes ago. Fantastic. <laughs> and um, and I echo uh, the gratitude to Dan Gunn, uh, our previous guest, uh, who's CFO, Raman Kapil, said that uh, you know deep gratitude goes towards you know Dan for doing you know such a huge amount of work with the community. Uh, a lot of sort of lot of things start with him for sure and this podcast started with him is that right yeah yeah so um so yeah if it weren't for um you know that that spark i think maybe a lot of people around here you know would wouldn't have gotten off the ground
1: yeah and and the uh, like as another super connector in in our in our lucky community uh yeah, Dan's contribution definitely reverberate. And, and the team, the whole team of iSec, it's amazing what they do with the number of individuals who are actually on that team. It's only eight people, and they do just right. a lot of great stuff. Yeah. Um, so what have you seen
0: since 2012? Uh, would you say the economy's doubled when it comes to uh, technology? Uh, this is the time period uh, for Victoria that it was not the number one uh, industry in in Victoria, but now it is. Um, with the over four billion dollar industry.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, there's just been a, a very linear uh, uh, growth and uh, awareness and uh, increase in the amount of entrepreneurial energy in the tech sector, and and not not just like there's big companies and, and little companies. It's quite diverse. Uh, to look at MediaCore as an example, the fact that Workday decided to make a. Uh, office in this location, the fact that Amazon decided to have an office in this location when they acquired uh, A Books. There's lo- lots of examples of recognition of the unique uh, set of preconditions that Victoria has to make it a great space for uh, innovators and entrepreneurs, which is uh, amazing natural beauty, uh, a natural bias towards export because we're an island. Um, not. Affordable enough housing anymore, sadly, but still uh, compared to other uh, super centers uh, or or major hubs, uh, you know, reasonable. And then uh, access to kind of uh, a, a great constellation of education, food, uh, entertainment that is really you know the parallels of all these these areas and and um, uh, availability of of these services has been really fun to watch. Uh, I don't have the exact stat on on the growth in the ecosystem, but certainly uh, observe it in terms of the number of businesses that are just thriving right now. Sure. Um,
0: now, uh, let's move on to the Palm Grocery because I'm sure. very short on time. Uh, now, this is really fascinating that I came across this. Um, why would you have chosen uh, to open up a, a grocery store, especially when there's so many out there? And, sure. Yeah. Know, especially, I mean, Whole Foods is doing such a colossal job at yeah. uh, sort of identifying this. Kind of, sort of, the same market that you're in, which is specific end end to seller listeners, Palm Grocery specifically, tater, cares to um, people with specific sort of dietary needs, vegan, vegetarianism, stuff like this. Yeah,
1: this this is, there's a few factors that contribute to that. One uh, was um, you know in, in the pharmacy business, uh, we recognize the the endpoints for some chronic diseases, or that or that point where chronic disease has already taken hold. And I think we we believe as an organization, and I I have I think a, uh, a belief that this is a kind of broad understanding now that has extended beyond healthcare professionals, which is uh, the nutritional underpinnings to wellness are significant, right? If you're if you're eating well and healthy, uh, your your chances of succumbing to uh, disease is much much lower. So, mm-hmm. so, so stands to reason. So um, we we observed kind of three market forces, which was one was this this reality that that uh, nutritional Optimization as a is an important factor in healthy living. Uh, the strong trend towards individuals needing uh, specific and narrower uh, dietary paths mm. uh, to address health issues. So you know, uh, gluten sensitivity, food allergies, um, uh, specific diets to address um, skin conditions. Uh, the list goes on and on. So we recognizing that that, that uh, market need wasn't being met, hmm. uh, and then uh, opportunity in terms of people again. So I, I was uh, working with uh, two of my my close collaborators in a kind of formative stage at that point, which was uh, Dave Arnsdorf and Ed Low. Uh, Dave's a uh, also a, a tech entrepreneur and uh, a commercial real estate uh, entrepreneur here in Victoria, and a co investor with me. And Ed is a co investor with me, and he's a uh serial entrepreneur, second-generation food person. Uh, so his family uh, started uh, 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 Western Foods, which is an anchor grocery business in the West Shore. And so we were looking for opportunities to collaborate and recognize that this problem space hasn't been well met, even even with Whole Foods at the time, not on the island then, but um, uh, we, we saw like, there was an opportunity to go sort of a layer above that uh, kind of business model with specificity and and really high quality, uh, options, uh, organic food, uh, supplements and healthcare options or, or healthy living options mm-hmm. uh, and really knowledgeable staff. And that model really proven itself out mm-hmm. and uh, created uh, an opportunity for us also to engage with a large number of producers. Um, so we look for opportunities to invest in food creators. Uh, so Rumble, Drink Rumble is an example of that, that's a more recent uh, business that we acquired. Mm-hmm. Uh, we co-invested with uh, Andrew Wilkinson in uh, Fat So Peanut Butter mm-hmm. as another another recent one. Uh, we're all investors in um, ethical, na- uh, social nature, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, social nature is a business uh, born in Vancouver. Leah Krebs, an amazing entrepreneur uh, that helps uh, people find food products and uh, Um, specialty solutions for different dietary needs Mm -hmm. and does that through social and uh, online marketing tools. Mm -hmm. So, so lots of... um, Palm was a great platform for engaging with a whole new class of entrepreneurs and interesting business opportunities. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, And how many locations are there? Uh, Two. One in Nanaimo, one in Vancouver. Park of to be precise. Okay, wow, fascinating.
0: could we change gears to uh, check front? Sure. Curious about that. Uh, you were an investor, um, early investor, seed yes. investor mm-hmm. uh, as of two thousand
1: fourteen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're doing they're doing great. Gangbusters here. Amazing office. Great people. Every time I meet them, absolutely amazing, amazing team. Uh, really for- fortunate to have met uh, Jason and Grant when I did. Um, worked with them both on putting together that round back in two thousand fourteen, and then also participated in the subsequent financing and. I guess it was 2016. Uh, served on the board, uh, spent a lot of time with Jason in in that regard, and and have had a chance to really interact with the whole team there. Uh, I, I to the theme earlier of of connecting with amazing entrepreneurs, uh, you know, getting to know those guys initially, and then spending a lot of time with Jason uh, uh, in particular, mm. and just observing a really highly capable individual who's really uh, amazing at empowering his team. Mm. Really amazing at uh understanding and uh building against a vision. And uh a really great recruiter. he's he's attracted some amazing talent to that organization. Uh and he and Grant continue to really be involved. And Mark, who's also part of their leadership team, have done a, an amazing job of scaling that business. And they have a lot of opportunity in front of them. So I've really had fun working with them. Wow. Um Community Foundations of Canada. Um, I'm not familiar with them. Could you Tell sure. everyone about that a little bit, so so one of my earlier uh, volunteer roles uh, was serving on the board for the Victoria Foundation on the vice chair as of two thousand and sixteen yeah yeah uh, oh sorry that, that's for the Community Foundation of Canada I served before that uh, with the, with the Victoria Foundation and oh. um, great organization uh, was my first exposure to the Community Foundation movement, which is uh, a national uh, treasure of Canada really so the the, the foundation movement is Long standing, so I think the oldest community foundation in, in the country is Winnipeg's Community Foundation. Uh, Victoria's is the second oldest in the country uh, there's now one hundred and ninety one community foundations across the country, and uh, the past governor general headed uh, as one of his uh, Dave Johnson had one of his visions the idea that every community in the country would have access or have a community foundation as part of their, their fabric
0: wow.
1: uh, and the community Foundations of Canada is the national membership organization for all those 191 communities. Uh, so so my initial experience with the Victoria Foundation, an amazing organization that really is attached to the civil and social fabric of our city, uh, supporting most of the not-for-profits and charities in the city in some form, capacity building, uh, leadership development, uh, financial support, connecting donors who care with causes that matter is their, their guiding principle. And then later that led to an opportunity to engage with a national organization, uh, which uh, has been just a phenomenal experience, really interesting team of individuals based primarily in Toronto and Ottawa, but also Montreal and further abroad. And their mandate really is to uh, galvanize the movement as a whole, support their leadership and and partnerships and collaborations with other national institutions. Mm -hmm. Um, an example was, uh, you know, around the Canada's 150th anniversary. Uh, the CFC worked with the federal government and all the community foundations across the country to have uh, a welcome fund, uh, which helped uh, new immigrants, newcomers to Canada, have a better chance of success uh, through social engagement and services. Um, there was also a uh, 150 fund, uh, which was used to have enable communities to celebrate the. Sesquicentennial in their own unique ways, uh, which is just, you know, so sometimes it sounds uh, amorphous or, or or maybe a little bit um, abstract. But this idea that uh, our joy of living where we live is a function of the small things that make a community work, mm-hmm. uh, and that you know, uh, uh, murals uh, on the side of businesses that brighten our path. Um, programs that that uh, enable social inclusion uh, support resources for employment all these programs that kind of uh, enable people to be inclusive or engage in the community uh, many of them are supported by the Victoria Foundation and, and uh, you know more broadly the community foundation of Canada one really interesting project which is related back to the food story is uh the Victoria Foundation worked very closely with Rotary and a number of, of grocery chains in Victoria. Uh, so Thrifties and Country Grocer and, and others to uh, establish a uh, really amazing food uh, recovery program uh, out of the old Wilson's uh, warehouse on Viewfield Road. And so now thousands of pounds of food that used to go to waste now get redirected back into schools, uh, homes, uh, uh, food kitchens around the city that serve those in need. A uh, really amazing success story and sure. uh, kind of a, an example of the convening power that community foundations can bring to bear. Wow, that is beautiful. Um,
0: yeah, and I see uh, it's they've been doing so uh, since 1936 in Victoria. Mm-hmm. That's that's incredible. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, New Ventures BC, where you're a panelist, judge, mentor, and volunteer since 2010.
1: Oh, since 2001, actually, yeah. uh it's, New Ventures BC is a the the, the business venture competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an annual uh, program where uh, startups, uh, early stage businesses across the province, can uh, compete with one another to be recognized for a grand prize. Now I think it's two hundred thousand dollars of non-debt right. funding. Yeah, uh, mentorship and access to uh, financial and uh, other other mentorship resources. Uh, Metalogics won the competition in two thousand one. So that that's how we got connected with the program. It was really a substantive uh, boost for us. Really early early validation. You know, in the early days of starting a business, there's not a lot of proof points that you're doing the right thing. And so for us, winning that competition was economically helpful, but really it was just uh, a feather uh, that sustains you in those times where you're you know not necessarily financially uh, viable. So our business at that point was really sweat equity. We're all working uh, for free. We weren't. We weren't generating enough revenue at that point to pay ourselves much more than peanuts. Yeah. And so at that point, it was a $25,000 cash prize, much smaller than it is today, but just made a world of difference to us and was a really great experience. A big morale boost. Yeah, absolutely. And something you put on your site as well. Sure, yeah. It was, it was actually, it was really great for us for commercial validation to say, yeah. you know, you're award-winning business to prospective, sure. prospective clients. Those proof points make a difference for sure. And, and so the opportunity to be a, a panelist for the jury for that program has been great. Some of the companies I've invested in have been uh, through experiences with that program, where I've met entrepreneurs and seen their story through that that competition, and later invested. Wow, that's so that's so
0: great, and 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 again, this speaks to some of the parts of this ecosystem that is really supporting startups and businesses. Yeah, uh, really get off the ground. Indeed, yeah. Um, could we speak a little bit about Enovia Capital, where you've been for 2000, since two thousand sixteen as advisor, investment commit on the investment committee
1: member and LP? Yeah, limited partner. So i I, uh, I, I have been, had a lot of joy in being an angel investor. It's been a great experience in terms of connecting with entrepreneurs, economic outcomes, um, making meaningful connections with great businesses, uh, recognizing that that uh, uh, scaling that up uh, was. Uh, a valuable thing for me to do uh, collaborating with Inovia has been a really fun experience. So I started off as an investor in their fund mm-hmm. uh, and then later uh, moved into more of an advisory role where I support their investment committee and review all the deal flow that comes through. Um, and a uh, great, great way to observe an amazing group of entrepreneurs, which is, uh, you know, Chris and Sean and Karam have built an amazing business. Uh, they recently introduced two new general partners, uh, Dennis Kabelman and Patrick Michette. Uh Dennis was the former CFO at RIM. And uh, Dennis was the CFO at Google. So amazing talent to add to their team. And uh, Todd, who's their new partner in Silicon Valley. uh, Pan-Canadian fund, and my rationale for getting involved with them was really getting further exposure to deal flow in Eastern Canada and Waterloo in particular, uh, and the Valley. And really a fun collaboration. um, Expand the surface area, if you will, for for deal flow and and, uh, great teams. Fantastic. Uh, you have
0: so much on the go.
1: Uh, how do you do it?
0: Tell me a little bit about your daily or weekly schedule. How do you stay
1: organized? What are the, how do you start your day? Sure. Uh, uh, I, I, this is a great question. So Monday and Tuesday I spend primarily uh, reviewing and engaging around our operating businesses. Uh, and, and those would be sort of the bricks and mortar enterprises. Uh, Wednesday, I spend a lot of time with my accountant. And uh kind of on the financial portfolio, if you will. Uh, and then leave a lot of time for um space, uh-huh. a time to meet with individuals, uh, new business opportunities, uh, working with collaborators and uh try and create that um balance between being engaged in our existing businesses and making space and time for new ventures. And a lot of that's recruitment, looking for you know, the, the next team members that I'm gonna work with. Um, and then also mm-hmm. uh, uh, making time to engage some of the entrepreneurs that I'm already working with through the investments. Mm-hmm. How do you start your day? Ah, uh, you know, I, I have a recent passion, renewed passion. I grew up in a family where my father would meditate for an hour. Uh, and my mother is a regular meditation practitioner as well. Uh, but my, my father, I remember in particular was, was great. He would meditate for an hour, uh, every morning. And, and that's uh, part of our cultural practice. So I kind of grew up in that, uh, and my. My current favorite uh, practice is uh, 15 minutes to half an hour of mindfulness or meditation, followed by uh, getting my kids out the door into school. Uh, and we have, I have a nine year old and a 12 year old daughter who are amazing uh, contributors to my life and great housemates and, uh, beautiful souls. So I get a lot of joy from, uh, having breakfast with them and, uh, getting them to their, their, uh, uh their school where they actually interestingly enough School they go to, which is called the Victoria School for Ideal Education, they start their morning uh, with meditation at that at that institution, which is really neat. beautiful then it's uh uh some time with my calendar and uh some review of the meetings ahead and you know the the obvious of email and you know I life. I didn't spend all the time on instagram yeah <laughs> uh, I, I try, try, and try and make some t- uh i I am a voracious news consumer. Um try and focus on on news sources that are oriented towards future trend lines. Um I'm I'm sensitive to the bias uh towards um the 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 clickbait scenarios, if you will. Uh, and, and I just find the mental space that that, that consumes isn't always productive for me. Mm-hmm. Uh so really towards technology, healthcare, uh and and uh climate and environmental news. Where do you get your information from? Oh, uh, I'm a subscriber to the New York Times. I really enjoy Bloomberg. Uh, I, I've, I've, Since uh, Michael Arrington's era, I've been an, a fan of TechCrunch. I uh, enjoy The Verge, uh, Twitter. Uh, very uh, recently, mo- much more engaged with reading and following posts on Medium. Uh, and then uh, I'm lucky enough to have a group of entrepreneurial and uh, not just entrepreneur friends, but f- friends, great, just great people who are kind enough to share their insights and what they're up to, reading wise and news. So th- those those create a nice framework for for engagement. Uh, I still read the Times Colonist uh, uh, for local news and uh, the Capital Now, which is the email newsletter that I subscribe to. All right. On. Um And what are some of the tools that you use every day? What are the intimate things that you
0: use to get your jobs done?
1: Sure. I am a regular user of uh, Gmail and the Google Suite, uh, which is interesting. I started my career really much in the Microsoft ecosystem, and I still still love a lot of Microsoft tools, but definitely uh, for for email, it's it's Gmail, and Superhuman is a recent tool yeah. that I'm getting good value from. Uh, LinkedIn, uh, and uh, uh, I'm involved with uh, Redbrick as an advisor and investor, and they build a product called Shift, which I find really valuable for managing multiple email accounts. Um, so I spend sort of my time balanced between superhuman and shift, uh, mm-hmm. shift is, is kind of a browser for work, uh, is a really great tool that lets me, you know, have tapped on all my email accounts, my calendar, uh, Facebook messenger, which is a common tool for communication for me and, uh, LinkedIn. So that's, that's a tool that I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, Chrome is a browser. All right.
0: Oh, great. Well, I'm going to get you out of here early. <laughs> and, um, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Um, Razul Rayani, really appreciate your time. Thank you all for listening. Um, again, consider uh, supporting this podcast. And my gratitude to uh, Manjinder Benning for the theme song and Quadratic uh, Sound for your support. Thank you again. And see you next time on Coded in Canada.